Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Welcome, listeners. We're going to introduce Stephen Short in just a minute, um, but I want to remind you that the Global Marketing Show is sponsored by Rapport International, and uh, Rapport International connects people around the world in over 200 languages with high-quality translation and interpretation. So, Rapport International likes to do tidbits and they put them out on social media. And I've got one for you here today. You know, remember that show on TV? I think it was Wheel of Fortune that you'd say, I'd like to buy a vow. Well, did you know you can make a sentence in Romanian that contains no consonants and every vowel in it? I don't know how to say it. Do you know Romanian at all, Stephen? I don't, but I'm very keen to hear you give this one a go. <laughs> and it translates as I'm taking a sheep into English. <laughs> I don't know what the actual meaning is, but now we know that you can make a whole sentences, a whole sentence in Romania without without a consonant. So on that note, I'll introduce Stephen Short and then we can actually get him into the conversation. He's the former owner of one of the top English language schools in Ireland, and he's currently focusing on helping people find their ideal career paths and helping family businesses to scale through the generation. So he is owner of Successful Succession and Career Fit. So welcome, Stephen. I'm so anxious to hear your story. Hi, Wendy. Well, good morning for you, I think. Good afternoon for me. How are you? Yes, good. I guess we should say the Australian good day. Good day. How are you? <laughs> good day. Good day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you said you're an Irishman. If I put a uh, microphone in front of you, you'd be good to go to to entertain us. So. Yeah. So there are there are some stereotypical traits that I do embody of of the Irish. Although one of them that I don't embody, I'm not. Uh, I'm one of the few Irishmen you'll meet that doesn't drink by choice, which of course means that international people don't believe I'm Irish, and Irish people don't trust me. So you don't drink by choice. So, so that drink, means you drink, drink only under pressure. Only. <laughs> <Very> good. <laughs> no, it's, so uh, most of the time when I meet new people now, uh, I kind of since I hit probably my mid thirties, which was not in the last year or two, uh, when I meet new people and I tell them I don't drink, I can see them finishing the sentence with any more. Like I had an absolutely fantastic time in my twenties and thirties, and now I just can't drink anymore. For me, it was I bought my first car when I was eighteen. Uh, I got into the habit of driving and not drinking, and it's a boring, boring story. Well, you know what? It's fine because I have cut back a lot of my drink. Uh, you know, like Friday night, I like my glass of wine, but you do feel better if you don't. So there's, there's a lot. I found a um, non-alcoholic liquor that is is quite tasty. It's low calorie. It's all natural. Um, and you're going to ask me the name. We'll have to put it in the the show notes. Perfect. And get them to sponsor the show. 
and get them that yeah there you go this show would they yeah. be a perfect sponsor for, for but anyway i want to get into the esl school in ireland you were in 50 countries you were marketing in 50 countries and you had people from 30 to 35 different countries that came there i don't know what the 30 to 50 the difference so is we there. had so so no we had we would have students from up to 50 different countries every year that would come to us in Dublin to learn English. So we would market in most of those countries. Some of those countries we didn't visit, but we had uh, local agents on the ground who were like tour operators, the traditional tour operators of pre-internet age, who would be their local point of contact for students who are looking to study English in Ireland, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, wherever they were going, or to learn French in France and Russian in Russia and things like that. So these agents would help those students find the right course for them based on what they're looking for. So they'd have the schools that they would work with, and they might have a portfolio of 10 or 15 schools that they would work with or more. But we would do an awful lot of traveling out to those countries. So the majority of those countries, we would visit at least once every three years to meet partners, to meet corporate clients, to meet former students, to meet potential students, doing trade fairs, doing student fairs, and interacting with all these people through English, sometimes with an interpreter for some of the markets and some of the destinations, but predominantly it was through English and uh, and being very expressive and speaking in a kind of a pre-intermediate, I don't know if you're familiar with CEF4, uh, the Council of Europe framework for language levels, but a pre-intermediate kind of B1 level. So people could understand and, and get a feel for the culture of the school and the culture of the organization. Oh, okay. So there was so much in there that was really interesting. And I didn't realize that there was people that would help students pick where they wanted to go. So tell us about your students. Why were they looking uh, to learn English? What were their ages? So our demographic why, was quite different yeah. from most of the schools in Ireland. We and we pitched ourselves uh, at a really at a different demographic. A lot of schools in Ireland would be kind of 18, 19 years of age, the, the traditional student for those schools, long-term working holiday, because in Ireland, students who are coming from non-European countries can study for 25 weeks. So a, a university term, a university year duration. But while they're studying, they can also work part time, which they can't do in America. They can't do in Canada. They can't do in the UK, for example, which gave Ireland a bit of an edge for some of those destinations, for some of those markets. So that would be the traditional the traditional demographic for an awful lot of English language schools in Ireland. Our average, so they would have 25 week long courses, 25 week long students, and they'd be 18 or 19 years of age. Our average age was 28. And our average stay was 3.2 weeks because we would do a lot more short-term courses. People who are more at the professional end of things are looking to improve their career prospects where they would be using English as a core part of their international business development or their international sales or their international and any element of their business, whether it's sales, networking, or working across international companies. So that was the type of student that we would target and that we would welcome to our school. Okay, and so which which countries did most of your students come from? Top five countries would have been Germany, Spain, France, Italy, and Brazil, I'd say. 
Brazil. Oh, that's interesting because yeah. I was following around the European countries and yeah, saying so that Europe makes sense. Yeah, so Europe would have been a big one, and then Brazil. But we would have we would have gotten lots of students from Asia, particularly from Japan and Korea. Fewer from China. We wouldn't get any. Ireland is not a big destination for countries like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, any of those places. We're just not known. We're not on the map there. Middle East, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Northern Africa. Libya, we would have gotten quite a few students. East Africa, no, they, I mean they speak English. They don't. They don't go to. They don't go to Europe to learn English. If they were going, they'd probably go to South Africa. Uh, it'd be cheaper and easier for them. And we would get quite a few from from South America, Latin America as well. And so, tell me a little bit more about how you started your school, what the intention was, and then how you built your global marketing. So we started a family business. So, which is why, so I have two family businesses. I bought both of them uh, and sold the language school. So the language school is obviously 100% reliant on international travel. Uh, my last day in that industry was the 6th of December, 2019, which wow. was just, which was, I, I think it was actually the same day that the government in Wuhan officially announced that COVID-19 was a thing. So, I mean, I've been called everything from an evil genius the stuff that's far less complimentary by uh, friends and, and former competitors. So, but when we started the school, when my parents started the school, I was 11. Um, I say we, we started the school. It was very much, it wasn't an English language school. It was an executive training school for international students, but the demand very quickly became apparent that it was really English language skills that people wanted. So it was less about, they knew students at a certain level would kind of know the technical words and the technical terms for their industry. What they were interested in was the communication bits, was the networking bits and the being able to have those natural flowing conversations with colleagues and competitors, as opposed to explaining whatever widget was that they used because they knew those terms that were probably, even in Spanish, those terms were probably English terms anyway. So what they wanted was the fluency, the, the ability to have those natural conversations with people. So that's when we got into the more of the English language side of things. But we always had very much our focus on the professional end of the market. We would do a lot of business English courses. We did a lot of uh, English for special purposes, very specific courses. We would do teacher training programs that were funded by the European Union for Erasmus. We did business English courses. We did technical English courses. So we did very, and, and closed groups, we did very specific English for special purposes programs. Like the, the business English, what kinds of, I know there, I had heard of somebody that was here in the United States that asked somebody to do some accent reduction in business English because he wanted to be able to speak American sports, you know, baseball and basketball yeah. and stuff. So if you've got a bunch of people that are coming in to learn business English, they're not looking for just, you know, English from Ireland. They're looking for global English. So what kinds of things would you be teaching them and how do you start? Because you've got all different levels coming in. So we've got all different levels, but we would have classes at all levels. So we don't, we wouldn't have mixed ability classes. We would have levels. So we use it. We use the CEF or framework, the Council of Europe framework, which ranked levels across all languages with a series of can-do statements. So if you were A0, C1, C2, sorry, Siri just popped up on my screen. I must have said some kind of a trigger that Siri thought I was talking to her. So they would be banded. So those bands, they correlate pretty much to things like beginner, elementary, pre-intermediate, intermediate, upper intermediate, and advanced. So, but there are 
there's a very specific framework which is developed by the Council of Europe to allow people to understand, okay, if I'm at C1 in English, it means this. And if I'm at C1 in French, it means this. And if I'm at C1 in German, it means this. And they're all the same. They're a list of things that can communicate in the past tense, can discuss ideas in the future tense. So it, it, it quite technical terms of your understanding of how those languages work. So, so we would have classes at all levels every week. We used to guarantee every lesson, every class from pre-intermediate to upper intermediate that we would have a class available for you. Absolute beginners were so few and far between, especially for a school like ours. We, we had, I think, one, one week of intake a year for beginners and we'd still only get one or two people on those courses and the advanced the, the very advanced and the proficiency again we'd only have two classes a year that would run for two weeks and we might have five or six people in those classes so the rest of the time the people would come in they would come in at a class at their level we test them on the first day we do an interview we do a written test a grammar test and then we place them in class with other students at their level to be able to communicate at the same level and learn together as they're progressing through the class and the students can come. So this is another part of the, uh, and it's one of the, I suppose, the intricacies of running an English language school. You have some students who are there for 25 weeks, some students who are there for one week and everything in between. So every Monday you might have a couple of new students arriving into a class. You have a maximum of 14 or 15 in your class. So you have to juggle who's leaving, who's coming in, what levels are coming in, who can move up, who needs to stay another week at that level. So we would have weekly meetings with teachers to discuss the progress that individual students have made. So a 25-week student over the course of those 25 weeks would have moved up two, maybe three levels because they're making progress and, and moving along. Somebody who's there for two or three weeks probably wouldn't move up a level distinctly, but they would make an immense amount of progress and be ready to move up to that next level where they're staying on a little bit longer. Right. So that just, that sounds overwhelming to me because you've got to have new content for people that are staying for 25 weeks, but then you've got to have like basic content at each level for the people who are so, coming in for a couple of weeks. So we created a curriculum, a 12 week program where we would have a 12 week, every week, every student would be working on a similar theme. So we, we use real world scenarios. We use real world projects. So we, people weren't learning English in theory they were learning English, how to use it in, in the real world environment. So if I was to give you the example of, let's say on week seven, I, it was a couple of years ago, so I can't remember exactly what the, the frameworks were. But if we were to say on week seven, everybody's going to be doing tourism. Tourism is the theme. Over the course of the 20 weeks of that, 20 hours of that week's training, they would be covering grammar. They would be covering vocabulary, covering learning, covering or covering reading and writing. So the, the major skills but there would be a theme for the week around tourism. Now, if you were at a lower level class, so if you were in a pre-intermediate class or a, a beginner elementary class, maybe, your tourism might be explaining things in your country or being able to talk to people about the, the best tourism things to do in your country because you're, you're expressing your, your ideas through English, but your English isn't so you're doing basic stuff and explaining this tour and it's a beautiful site and it's this, it's that. But when you are up at the, let's say, upper intermediate level or almost or at the advanced level, you're still doing tourism. But actually the project you're working on to practice your reading, writing, listening and, and speaking is you actually have to develop an itinerary for somebody going to your country 
So you have to use the past tense about when they book something, the future tense of where they're going, the present tense about what is there at that place. So it's putting it into uh, real world scenarios. Okay. So you would take like tourism and then cooking and then yeah, or, gardening or whatever it is, and then just yeah, have be, it. So going. there'd be a, more of a theme. So I might be reading one week or it might be like literature one week or movies another week or something like that. So, but there was a 12 week program, a 12 week syllabus that we followed in a loop. So even if you got, so for example, this student who's here for 25 weeks, the first time that they were doing tourism, they might be doing, as I said, explaining what's happening but then in seven weeks time when they're at tourism again they're at a different level so they're actually doing different projects around the theme of tourism so that's really brilliant to have have that rotating so you don't have to time when people are coming in Mm -hmm. all right so building that school and trying to attract international people in how did, what were some of the challenges? I don't know if you really had the fears because it sounds like your parents started it and then you came in and got a progress. So my, my parents started it. I got involved properly full-time probably 20 years before we sold it. I was building it. I came in as a marketing uh, executive, worked my way up to different bits and pieces, but was actively involved in all of the promotions. So the marketing of the business was was really a lot of my focus. My background was not academics or, or the actual learning of the lang- or language learning or the academic side of things. I had a fantastic team of people who looked after all of that. My job really was to go out and put bums on seats. So we would do a lot of trade fairs. We would have a lot of agents. So as I mentioned to you at the beginning, Agents would be travel agents, tour operators who might have one part of their business is just booking holidays for people to go away for a week with their family to a city break or a beach holiday or whatever. But a large part of their business will be dedicated to helping people find language courses for them to go to because quality can vary dramatically city by city, school by school, country by country. People have different ideas of destinations, different destinations are different prices. So the UK, like London would be more expensive to study than in Ireland, than in Dublin. And Galway would probably be cheaper again. New York would be very expensive. Whereas if you went to Denver, for example, the flights might be a bit more expensive to get to from Europe. But when you're there, the fees for three months might be 20% less than the fees for three months in New York. And the living mm-hmm. expenses are different. So these agents would have done all of this these re, this research. They would have met schools at different industry events. They would have net, met them at different uh, networking events, which is basically like speed dating for professionals where the schools will have a table. The agents will come around every 20 minutes. A bell will ring. And you have this conversation of this is what we offer. This is what we do. Like a fair. Then the schools would also go to thing, locally organized student fairs, for example. So one of these agents might decide in Turkey... They're going to invite maybe 20 schools from around the world that they work with to come and have a stand. And they'd have one of their interpreters there in case the student's level of English wasn't good enough. And the schools would then talk about their school directly to the student. The student would then go, okay, at the end of the day, I've met like six of these schools and I want to get more information about that school, that school, and that school. And then they would get that through the agent. The agent would get their commission. Okay, so so the first makes sense to me. So you're going to trade shows to meet travel agents and tour operators. Mm-hmm. And so you're, this is all a, a B2B sale. And then you're yep. depending on them to sell to you, for yeah, you, so what for we you. We would do, so let's say, for example, there was a Spanish agent. So we would go out 
I probably wouldn't meet them at fairs so much because it was so we I would just fly over to Madrid, meet six or seven of our partners in two days in their offices. So for an hour in each place, just how are you? Have a coffee, have a chat. What's new? What's different? They would then take our information, which we produced in English, and they would have a Spanish brochure of all of the schools that they represent with photographs that we provided, with text that we provided, what they translated into Spanish. And then those brochures or that website would be marketed heavily in Madrid, Barcelona, Seville, all the like the places where they would have offices or inroads. Then when students or uh, students in this case, it's not, I'm not talking about just like high school students. I'm talking about like anybody who's coming to learn English, like a client, they might be going, Oh, I really, I need to improve my, I want to get this promotion. I need to up my English. So they start Googling or they start looking for where can I find out more about language schools? These guys come up, they get their brochure, they read through, they go, yeah, kind of, I, I like the idea of Dublin, or maybe I like the idea of England, or I want the adventure of going to Australia for two months or whatever it is. And then they find, they look at the schools, they look at the descriptions, they look at the star ratings, they look at the recommendations. Then they contact the agent in Spanish and they have a chat to them on the phone or they have a meeting with them in person. The agent then would get more information like, well, what are you looking for? Why are you looking for this course? What kind of budget do you have? What kind of time frame do you have? And then they would have in their head, okay, this, this student would be good for school A, B, A, school A, school X, school D, and school F. So they'd present their information. The student makes a booking through the agent. The agent sends us the information and then we handle everything from there. So you were doing all your marketing in English then? Yeah. So we, because we made a couple of very conscious decisions. Now, some people there, we did have a couple of pages that we would have professionally translated into big ones, Spanish, French, Portuguese, Arabic, Chinese, for example. But because back then, anyway, to get all of the stuff translated in real time, all the time, that was not Google Translate. I mean, let's be honest, Google Translate is a nonsense uh, <laughs> for, for marketing. And my view was we couldn't be using Google Translate on our website to be trying to get students to learn the language instead of using Google Translate. We couldn't then turn around and use Google Translate. So, so we did get stuff professionally translated, but then... I, we we couldn't do the blog like we, we wouldn't have had the budget to be able to do the blogs and to update stuff all the time because back then it was it was more expensive i'm, I'm sure there there are ways of doing it uh, more effectively now but our business was b2b anyway so our our website was really just as an informational point for potential students our direct bookings while high for our competitors was only ever around 20 to 25%. So 75% of our business came through these agents who were translating it to their local language and putting it into their local context anyway. So for us, we aimed all, we, we made sure that when we were writing stuff on our site, whether we were doing blog posts or whether we were doing information pages for each of our courses, we wrote at a pre-intermediate level. So it's the fluency was fine. The, pace the tempo and everything else was fine but you could understand it even if your level of english wasn't that high okay because we, yeah. want, we were really it was our website was as much a reassurance for students that were looking at us after they'd booked through the agency that we were a legitimate school as opposed to a hardcore selling page on our site all right. So then you were talking about the distributors or, you know, the agents that you were working with in Spain. How many agents did you work with 
in a country? Depends on the country. So we would we would have had any given year, we'd probably get students from over 120 agents. Some agents would send us one student. Mm-hmm. Some student, some agents would send us 50 students, 100 students. So uh, everything in the mix of that. But like all things, the, the 80-20 rule, like 80% of our students came from 20% of our agents. So what I'm wondering about, like it just... And thinking about marketing is a consistent voice that's going out. You're having the same message that's reiterated. So you're really establishing your brand. If you've got multiple agents in Spain and you give them the English and they do the translation and you're mm-hmm. trusting them to bring the business in, you've diluted your brand. Your message could be very different. Did you ever worry about that or look at that? No. So we, I mean, we would look at the stuff that people would do and, and have conversations with them about what we were selling because we, we, we had agents who we worked with for 15, 20 years. So we had good longstanding relationships with them. What a lot of agents will do though, is they won't actually include the name of the school in the brochure. So they'll give all the information, they'll have all the photographs, they'll have the location, they'll have the quality marks but they don't put the name of the school because they don't want the student then going to the website going, Oh yeah, that's a really good school. and booking direct because they lose that commission because there's no way of tracking that kind of activity. Oh, okay. The the agents would be selling their bit and their support and their pre-sale support and their aftercare and things like that. And what what other things that the agency can do, whether it's booking flights or making sure that the tours or whatever, so, and the agents would have their own marketing channels. So they might have contracts in with a couple of engineering companies or big tech firms or something like that, where they would be the point that those people would go through. They didn't want to book directly. They just want to say, hey, this Juan and Andrea want to go for a week to Dublin, book it. And then for them, it's like, okay, which one of these do you want? Then they'll sell, tell you the name and everything else because they're not going to lose that client. So it depends on the agent. It depends on the situation. Okay, right. Because I was quite concerned thinking about losing that, but it was no advantage to the agents if you provided materials that were already translated because they were going to take it and put it on their own and take your name away. Yeah. Yeah. So you really were depending on them to do all the lead generation and pull pull people in. Okay, so, so you're we di- still creative. We did a lot of stuff in terms of video. We did a lot of stuff on social. Word of mouth for referrals worked very well for us as well. And that was definitely us reinforcing what our students were saying about us. And was that only in English or that's what you would yep, translate? Only in English. Only in English. Okay, but you knew to keep it at a pre intermediate level. Yeah. Okay. Cause then you were tracking the odd. So you had clearly defined your audience. Yeah. And then it's interesting. Yes. Yeah, so you didn't do trade shows that were targeting college students at all. You were doing trade shoes to get to the agents that were going to the business professionals that wanted to take exactly. a vacation and or learn. the college students as well, because so when we would do a, a student fair, it would be a student fair organized by one of the agents. So in Turkey, for example, there'd be a couple of big agents that would do this from time to time. So once a year, like five schools from Ireland, six schools from the UK, two schools from the US, two schools from Canada, and a school from Malta would all arrive out in Istanbul. We'd meet together for dinner with the agent. 
the next day we'd all have a stand in this big conference hall there'd be a couple of hundred students coming in getting information talking to people but they wouldn't be booking with us they would be there because the the name of the agency is the the agency fair we were there supporting the agent so we were there supporting our b2b relationship whereas their relationship with the student was their b2c they were selling the student this it was really just to get us to come over to help them to organize a big event because we paid for ourselves to be there we paid to be a, a space uh, in that fair but then we also paid a commission for every student that we met that came through that agent because it's building the relationship it's uh, building that b2b relationship and then those students are happy, so it's easier for them to refer future students to us. And then in two years time, we come and we do it again. Okay. All right. So this is very, very good marketing. Now, there's always mistakes along the way. <laughs> so <laughs> do tell some mistake stories. One of the things that we used to, that, that we used to be hyper anxious about was ever having printed typos. Because mm. if we, we're in English language school, we're supposed to be the, the bellwether and the, the number one location for people to be able to improve their English language skills. If we have typos in our brochure, oh, why, how could you trust us? So, I mean, the stories of people arriving out and getting like 3,000 flyers printed for one of these student events, for example. And then when they get there, somebody looking at it with fresh eyes and realizing that the headline has a, a glaring spelling mistake. And they have to ditch the whole thing and try and scramble to get like a Kinko's or a, a, a something similar to print these off again really quickly with the correction made. So there's things like that. Really, it was because it was a, a lot about the the person to person stuff. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of stories. I've threatened to write a book on this many times and some of the short stories, some of the stuff that people get up to on these marketing trips, because usually there's a fair amount of alcohol involved and late nights and then early starts where you're sitting at your table first thing in the morning and you have an agent who's sitting down in front of you. And they're just breathing alcohol fumes on you, trying to talk to you. I remember being in Russia years and years and the agent, we we're five minutes into the meeting and the agent goes, no, we, no, we will have vodka. And we drank like four shots of vodka during the meeting. And I think he negotiated a new commission rate with us and then drove us back in the snow. I mean, it was just crazy stuff, but it was all... I mean, we, we, we dealt with people, as I said, I mean, we were getting students from 50 students, 50 countries around the world. So, I mean, we can't speak 50 languages. We didn't have the budget to translate into 50. So we might have like one student from Ghana or one student from Laos or three students a year from Cambodia. So it still wouldn't have, even over the course of five years, to translate everything and the whole mass of information into Cambodian or into Vietnamese, it would have, wouldn't have been cost effective. Mm -hmm. So because it just we weren't a big enough market. So that's why we had the agents, the those agents in Cambodia or Vietnam or whatever, they probably sent 99% of their students to to Australia, because that's the big destination for Southeast Asia to learn English. But if they had one random person said, oh, I saw this thing on TV about Ireland, and the Vietnamese would go, oh, I actually met a guy two years ago from Ireland. Let me look up his details. Yeah, okay, this is a good school. Send him off because I had a good relationship with him. I met him, he followed up, he sent me the stuff. So we wouldn't get students every year from Vietnam, but it'd be one of those countries that every every two or three years, we get one or two students and that would bump up our nationality mix. And I think that's a lot of global marketers are talking about that is, is you have to have a strategy. You can't do it all at once. And you mentioned earlier that you do a couple of pages and translate it in your most 
frequently serviced audience, which was the Spanish, French, Arabic, and Chinese. And Mm -hmm. so that that you could see. And now with the metrics, I mean, you can go onto Google Analytics and you can see where people are coming in from Mm -hmm. and bring them in through the journey. But -hmm. if you get the one-offs, you know, that's not. And I think some companies can jump and say, oh, well, maybe we should go here now. But it takes this concentrated Mm -hmm. thinking that what you did and you knew where to spend your money and where not. Absolutely. And I mean, look, we... So we were probably a slightly different, so I mean, a lot of the companies that you would be dealing with, especially you professionally would be dealing with, would be trying to market and sell their wares internationally. So speaking the local language is like hugely important, having that nuance that Google Translate is just not going to give you and being able to not only translate it, but localize some of the stuff and like using idioms and using local knowledge and local turns of phrases to actually make people understand this is a product I can relate to. For us, the product we were selling was English language training. So it was a slightly different marketing. So we we had to do it through English most of the time because that's what we were selling. So if, if you were selling an experiential summer camp, for example, and you were trying to sell that internationally, you wouldn't have pages and pages of just pure text. You're going to have as many photos and videos as you can to try and let people feel the immersion of it. So having the understanding of what you're selling, how you can translate that and how you can get that nuanced is really, really important. But for us, we were selling English language. So we had, we, we were very focused on those countries that we translated those pages for. It was very much the why, like the, the core of who we are, what, why, why we're different or why we think we're, why we think we're better than the competition without saying we're better than the competition. Although a lot of the time I did say we're better than the competition. So what, what makes us different? What can you expect from us to get a, a proper understanding in local language that's easy to digest? And then they go, okay, I want to learn more. Okay. I'll put in the little bit of work to, to have the mental load to read it in pre-intermediate English. But for the first bit, especially the, the opening salvo, to have that in the local language, which is digestible and can relate to people, then that was money well spent from us. So biggest challenges in marketing the school? Well, I mean, with all things in the service industry, business would be great if it weren't for the customers. I mean, we dealt with people. I mean, we, we dealt with thousands of people from around the world with thousands of personalities, thousands of quirks, year in, year out, different cultural things, different, even within cultures, the subcultures. So, I mean, it, it's really our business was all about people. So mm-hmm. the, the, and, and the turns of phrases that people used, and some people picked up the language quicker, some people didn't. So it, it really all of the, this, Can you give us a funny story about a cultural misunderstanding? One that I won't get in trouble for. Let me think. Yeah, you're not going to get in trouble here. (laughs) I mean, really, a lot of it is, so we would have, one thing that was really interesting to see a lot of the times we had, like, let's say we had a long-term Japanese student. And in Japan, there would be uh, a a culture, as as we know, kind of quite conservative. And like, you are very polite and respectful to everybody. And then we'd have a student that would be like six or seven weeks in Ireland and kind of loosening up, getting a bit more, a bit more Western, like a bit more comfortable with the, the rowdy Spanish and the suave French and all these kind of stuff. And then after a couple of weeks, they'd be effervescing in class and they'd be getting much more involved and much more engaged. And then another Japanese student would arrive in and the first Japanese student who had changed, who had kind of grown as a person 
as soon as the other Japanese person arrived in, they reverted back to what they understood to until they got a sense of how the other person's got to react. And then when the other person started to, to show signs of effervescing, then the first student would be like, okay, back to where I was a couple of weeks ago and, or a couple of days ago before this new person came in, which would allow the other person to come out of their shell a bit quicker. But it was, it's, we found it very interesting. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating that you see a fellow country person come in and then you revert to that culture mm. rather than feeling like I've already established this group. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. All right. So what are you doing now then? So now, so as I said, the language school was my family business. We had two family businesses, the language school, the ESL school, and we also have a, a psychometric business. We do career guidance, we do selection, and we do strategy planning for companies. So I'm specializing. So I bought that business as well as the language school, sold the language school, as I said. So now I'm focusing on the other business, which is career guidance for individuals, selection for companies to help them find the right people for their jobs. And I'm also helping family businesses to have proper succession planning in place to be able to scale their business through the generation. Yeah, that's a, so. that's a very specific one that you've had an example with. Now, are you, is this business global? So right now it is, so we've built the career guidance program. The coding on the back end has been specifically designed to be global, but it is going to be English speaking global first. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have, so let's say one of the careers might be in Ireland, the health service is called the HSE, the health service executive. So that's the national body that looks after hospitals and doctors and nurses and everything else in Ireland. So one career that you might get as part of when you filled in all the reports to be able to get your interest, your verbal numerical aptitude, aptitude tests and your interest inventory, one career might be HSE executive and a description of what a HSE executive does. But if you're in the UK, HSE doesn't mean anything to you because in the UK, it's called the NHS. So we'll have a variant of that career that will only show up if you're in the UK. It's if, you're, if that career is in your report, which will be an NHS executive. The other one then for the US, whatever is the, the local term for a health executive, I know it's a bit more fragmented in the US, but so we have those examples built in for localization, and then we'll be able to translate each of these and build those variants in. But again, it's definitely not going to be just a straight translation of that description. It's got to be localized for each of those countries. So what does a health service executive do in Spain? It's a slightly different job, or it might have a slightly different nuance in terms of the the amount of bureaucracy or less bureaucracy as the case may be. Somebody who works in a charity, there are different regulations and different things that you need to do in a charity in the US and a charity in Ireland. So those careers will have to be localized as opposed to just translated, but it is built with global in mind from the, from the very beginning and it's baked into the software. Uh, that just, it warms my heart and makes me grin ear to ear that you say you're building it in from the start that it can be globalized because you don't know how many technology companies or companies that I've seen that don't think global at the start mm -hmm. and then they end up scrambling or they have to put all sorts of band-aids on to be able to globalize. So thinking about that from really the start. Oh, it gets so clunky. And then it's, it's really difficult for the users. 
And so if you think global from the start, so anybody listening to this that's starting a company or is working at a start, just have that person in the room that is saying, think global, think global from the start, and it'll save you later on. Because the way that we're all connected through the internet now, Absolutely. you know, you're going to be Border, found in the stuff. Yeah. So what are your biggest challenges that are going on now? I guess the biggest challenges for the career guidance side of things is just, I mean, we just launched, we rebuilt over, over COVID. So we launched the beginning of this academic year. So in September, we launched, we've had fantastic feedback. And because we put so much thought in the beginning into the user journey, into where the buttons need to be. And then with, with that view of going, well, okay, this is going to work in Ireland, but will this work in America? Like, will this button, will this flow work in America? Will we be able to, will that make sense in an American context? And when we put this in Spanish, is the phrasing going to be bigger? Like that, that button is going to need to be bigger because download your report. You can say download in English, but in Spanish, it's a different phrase to download something or in Russian or in Japanese. So how is that going to play with the different characters to understanding how that design has to be flexible means that we spent a lot of time building it. Now we just have to get in front of as many people as possible to show them this. So, I mean, people can get uh, the report for themselves individually on the website, which will give them 16 careers that are personalized. So each one of those careers you're going to enjoy doing and be good at doing based on your unique mix of interests, verbal, numerical, and abstract reasoning skills. So we, we've been able to pinpoint if you take most people, if I ask you, Wendy, over the next three hours, we're going to sit down. I want you to name as many careers as you can think of. How many do you think you'd be able to get? Three hours, all types of careers, every career you can think of. 500. 500. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Most people say three. So I like the 500. That's good. Three careers? 300. No, 300. Oh, 300. Okay. Yeah. So if I was to then say to you, okay, how many of those do you think you could describe to somebody what's actually involved in that career? Most people kind of cut it in half. Yeah, that's ball. what kind of what I was doing about okay. half. Yeah. For then, so now you've described the career. Can you describe the type of person for, in terms of their numerical ability, their verbal ability, their abstract reasoning, and their interests who would be good at that career? Well, probably how many half of so those half. Half of those again. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's where most people they they generally go from three hundred to half to half. Mm -hmm. We have one thousand two hundred and seventy careers in our database, where we know what's involved in each of those careers, and we have a description for each of those careers. So we know what's actually involved, not the the romanticized version of the career. We know what's involved in that career. We also mm -hmm. know what it takes in terms of your natural ability and your interests to do well in that career. So mm -hmm. when we're able to, what we're able to do is you sit down, you do your series of assessments with us online. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your tablet, whatever. You will get a report of 16 careers, up to 16 careers, might be less, 16 careers maximum. And every single one of those careers you would enjoy doing and you would be good at based on your unique mix, a description of those careers, and then how to go about going getting into those, what college course, what career, what courses you should look at, and what other options you could look at in terms of apprenticeships or moving sideways if you're already in your career. So are you targeting high school students, secondary so students? High, high school and up, 
Yeah. So, I mean, you, it'll work. It, it's, it's perfectly valid as well for anybody who's looking at changing career, finished college and kind of gone, maybe that college course wasn't for me. What should I be looking at now? So it's aimed at everybody and anybody who is interested in finding out what they should, what they would be happy and fulfilled doing for the next 40 years. That's really interesting. So going back to globalizing it, then you've got to have those over 1,000, 12, 1,270 careers, the right title, yep. and then the description. So yep. somebody who understands. The nuance of not just straight translation, what it actually takes in those countries. So that's why when we get into it, now we understand what it is. And look, 95% of these careers are, they're, they're applicable and translatable. They're nuanced differences. So we'd have to kind of sit down with some people and go, okay, well, okay you think it's that okay well we'll we can adapt it in america a, a business transformation executive is this whereas opposed to in ireland it's this but 99 percent of the job is the same right right uh, but it will be localizing as opposed to again i mean we we wouldn't be going through google translate to do all this right and but that so that's the real difficult and then you have the description and the person who would be good at it yeah. Would that be, that would be similar across, that would be similar yeah, across cultures. Would be good at it. So we're, we're still looking at personal, I mean, we don't have a personality profile specifically in it, but our interest inventory does have some elements of personality and preferences in there. Mm -hmm. um, so it would still be this, somebody who is going to do well as an accountant in Ireland is going to do well as an accountant in America because the personality is the, right. the detail, the, the following. The, yeah, the, exactly. Somebody who is a marketeer in Australia is probably just as capable and just as interested in being in a marketeer in America. So the job yeah. is the same, the, the personality type, the aptitudes and the abilities should be pretty much the same, but there is some, some nuance in the details. Right, right. Because that's I've often wondered about some of the personality tests like predictive index or, you know, Myers-Briggs and how mm -hmm. they go across cultures. So. So we we are actually developed. We are distributors for Hogan assessments, which is an international oh, yeah, I know Hogan. assessment. Yeah. They're, they're fantastic. And they are localized in different languages. So they, they do do quite a bit of work at making sure that what works in one country is again, localized as opposed to just straight translated into different countries. Okay. So then you can build that in to find out preferences and they've already. Well, we'll do our own, we'll do our own research on it because that's Hogan's research and Hogan's data, but the, the, the essence would be the same. Like we would have to have uh, a research team and build out a research team in each of these new markets to, to go through each of the careers with a fine tooth comb to, to do the research locally and say, yep, yeah, that one's right. That one's the same. This one has a little nuanced difference here, and then we can have a discussion about it and what it works, what it needs to be, what needs to be adapted, and then roll it out. That is so cool. And I love that you're, do you're going uh, global with that. And we're kind of running out of time. So I want to get to some of the questions that I normally ask guests, like, Ooh. what's your favorite foreign word? Well, I speak quite a bit of Spanish. My wife is Spanish. So I've, again, I, I've never really had formal Spanish classes. It's most of the stuff that I've picked up. So I have a few words in Spanish that I probably will get you banned off whatever podcasting station you're on. So actually one in, in Portuguese and Brazilian, saudade, I think it is. It's this, oh, this sense of missing somebody and sense of loss. I've, I've always thought that's a, a very poetic word. But my, my favorite phrase that I use a lot is actually Polish. 
which is Nimoy Tsirk, Nimoy Malpe, which is not my circus, not my monkeys. I love that. <laughs> I use that a lot too. <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, the other one that I really like, another phrase that I like in a foreign language is in Arabic. Because I was born in Saudi Arabia, so I have an affinity for for hearing Arabic. I think it's a beautiful language. Litkul mishkila hal, which means for every problem, solution. For every problem, there is a solution. So, and Fun. sometimes that is not my market, not my circus, not my monkeys. Not my monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's knowing when it's not your circus. That's a yeah. great solution. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a skill. Yeah, it's interesting about Saudi. I think at least two other people have picked that same word for the podcast. Okay, interesting. Well, I'm not picking yeah. it then. <laughs> you're going to be different. I'm different. <laughs> yeah, well they're all they're all very good ones. Yeah, you think about all the, the you know languages in the world and all the words and to have that many people say Saudi, which is that mm. nostalgic missing somebody. Yeah, okay, how about a favorite vacation? I kind of have to say Spain and and different parts of Spain because I love going back to Spain. We lived there for a year uh, with the kids. Uh, a couple of years ago, it's when I actually decided to sell the school and and focus on the other business. I had that time to to reflect and time to to myself. But I mean, I've 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 been so lucky to travel to so many places, and there are a lot of places on my bucket list. So I have a, a public bucket list that I've shared. That I share with people all the time, and a lot of those countries that are on my bucket list, I've actually been to, but I've been to for work, so I haven't really seen it for tourism. So it's on my bucket list because I want to go back with my wife and kids. I want to share it with my family. And then I'll have feel that I've experienced it. But I've been to a lot of these countries already. So what are, what are some of the places on your bucket list to share with them? Oman is absolutely beautiful. I really fell in love with Oman when I was there. It's a beautiful, beautiful mix of the old Middle Eastern culture that hasn't got as westernized. Like it's only a couple of hours drive from Dubai, which is obviously glitz and glamour and Western. But Dubai, Oman really has that sense. Uh, I love traveling around some of the parks and some of the monuments in Tokyo and Japan. Really love, was really impressed with Malta, really enjoyed it. Thought it was a lovely, lovely country. And I'm going back again this year. Parts of Russia, spectacular. St. Petersburg is really pretty. Ukraine, obviously everything that's going on there at the moment. Kiev is a beautiful, beautiful city to walk around with the steps. I mean, I've been in most of Italy and really enjoyed it. You can always find these just amazing little cafes and you can just sit and people watch, have a nice cup of coffee and a nice snack or something. And I mean, the the world is out there. Go, go, go everywhere. Yeah. Just, just go. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you say St. Pete. That's been on my bucket list for a while and, you know, hopefully in this lifetime i'll be able to get there so the last time i was in st petersburg i was staying and this is probably about seven six seven years ago now i was staying in a hotel in the center and i was on the last flight to arrive at whatever time into the airport and i had a driver pick me up from the because i knew it was late and i was just i was going to be exhausted and he said okay get into the car the bridges all seven of the bridges are going up for the night in in about 20 minutes so we need to get there fast and he just hammered down the main road and i think i had all three of the seat belts on me at the back because he was flying to beat the bridges because otherwise we'd have to go all the way around it would take about an hour and a half to get to the hotel but a beautiful beautiful city why do the bridges all go up at night it was whatever way at that time of year or something. It was, I, I can't remember the, I, I don't remember the reason for it. I just know that this guy was going hell for leather to get me to there before the bridges went up. 
That's hysterical. I, I've never heard of that before, but I can imagine how afraid you were. <laughs> so I've been, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that I've been in. I was in Taiwan just before I, I left as the typhoon warning was coming into the country. I've been in Seoul when tensions were pretty high with Kim Jong-un threatening to press buttons in the north. I've been in a six point something earthquake in Tokyo. I met Yoko Ono in a hotel in Tokyo. Wow. Um, been, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just so many life experiences you can have when you when you get out there. Yeah, it's absolutely fabulous. And just no way you can explain it to anybody yeah. about being in another country and how you can really function if you don't speak the language or if you have an interpreter, how interesting that can be to, to get absolutely. that deeper level of understanding. Yeah. Any good stories about working with uh, an interpreter? No, I've been pretty lucky with. So some of the times the interpreters, if you're there in a two day fair, for example, and I, this happened to me in Japan, where I was at a two day fair with this agent. And so the first day, the first kind of three or four sessions, I would say things. The students had no idea what I was saying, but they were looking at me very politely. And then the interpreter would then interpret everything that I had said. Then the third or fourth time, the interpreter just started speaking because she knew the answers because they'd already been asked like 20 minutes ago. And then by the end of the day, I was just sitting there and the interpreter was doing all of the talking and she only turned to me if she didn't know an answer to something. So I was sitting there going, I could be walking around one of these monuments instead of just sitting here at this desk doing nothing. So it was good fun. But I'm kind of quaking in the background going, that's not a, a you know, professional. Inter I mean, it worked out for you because you had trust that she was getting the answers right and saying, but yeah. a professionally trained interpreter is going to wait till you answer and then repeat exactly yeah. what you say to make sure the information goes across. So, yeah, you go with the flow there. Yeah. Well, Stephen, this has been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Do you have any final recommendations for people that are doing or thinking about doing global marketing? Yeah, I mean, it really comes back to, to what you said at the beginning. If, you, if you're thinking, the, in Ireland, we have this expression of like thinking about the parish, just thinking about your local area. So the parish is where the church is in the neighborhood around the church. And, and people have this mentality of just thinking about the parish you really got to open your mind to seeing other possibilities, no matter how big your local market is, it's only a fraction of what's out there globally. And it's not that hard to add that to the mix at the beginning and build with the idea from the very beginning that you're going to have this internationalization, uh, international bit. You don't even need to build it. You just need to make sure that you have the right hooks in the right place to be able to bolt it in later, as opposed to trying to jackhammer it in. Right. Um, so having that mentality at the beginning to think beyond your borders gives you the, the scope to be able to understand, OK, I'm going to need I'm really going to need to go to let's even say so uh, America where I don't know where your market is, but I know you're based in the States. So imagine you're going, OK, America is a really big destination, but also Latin America has a massive population. So I need to at least think that in five years time, I might need to have this accessible in Spanish and Portuguese. And understanding that at the beginning, as you build an app, as you build a, a, an e-commerce or as you build something allows you to know, okay, I'm going to need to do this in the future. So I think about it now, 
so as I can plug it in so easily later on, as opposed to shoehorning in and having another like mx.mywebsite.com to have a new website that you've got to build in, in Spanish and a new one that you've got to build in Portuguese. Having that idea to, to put in those components at the beginning makes life so much easier later on. I think that's fantastic advice. I'm so glad to hear you saying that and also acting that way. So where can people find you if they'd like to learn more or get in touch? So for the career guidance program, it's careerfit.com. For the succession planning for family businesses or for any kind of succession helping somebody scale, it's successfulsuccession.com. And yeah, you can find me on either of those. I'm more than happy to have a chat. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your experience and, and uh, great global stories. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Great to see you, Wendy. So listeners, if you want to engage, remember that we have a global marketing and growth group on Facebook. You just go search that and ask to join and we'll let you in. There's some good conversations. If you have questions, if you need connections, if you need contacts, that's the place to go. Uh, and remember to forward this along to somebody, particularly if you know they're building out a, you know, a technology platform or something that they should be thinking about going global now. Because Stephen Short gave us some excellent advice on how to be able to bolt it in future and not jackhammer it. So thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.